You are listening to the Quest for Wholeness podcast, a biopsychosocial spiritual guide. If you're interested in the human experience, health, wholeness, and how everything is interconnected, then you are in the right place. In this show, we will explore the interconnected realms of health that lead to whole human beings. My name is Lexi Burrs, and I'm passionate about holistic well-being, longevity, and I'm armed with an education in psychology. I'm so grateful to have you here with me. Welcome to a Quest for Wholeness podcast. Coming up on a Quest for Wholeness podcast. Compassionate ageism is when you are overly protective um, and compassionate towards a group of people because your belief is that they need to be protected and they are more vulnerable. And we found that happening with older adults. You know, let's keep the older adults isolated. Let's keep the older adults in a bubble. Let's keep the older adults not interacting or coming out into society. Um, And it can happen with good intention. And I believe that sometimes that mostly is the case, especially healthcare and ageism. It could happen with good intention. And we don't think about the repercussions and how that could actually impact the way that the person feels and um, processes their own aging experience. Dr. Rose Judy, PhD in psychology, brings over 15 years of experience as an aging and ethnic diversity consultant. She is currently the research lead on an ethno-cultural elder abuse awareness project with Caria in Calgary, Alberta. Rose contributes valuable insights to the field through her background in academia and research. Dr. Judy collaborates with stakeholders to address the unique needs of older adults in diverse populations. Committed to enhancing seniors' quality of life, she actively promotes educational strategies and facilitates training sessions, including elder abuse awareness, ageism and elder abuse, and cultural competence and compassion when working with diverse populations. Dr. Judy is also a board member of the Canadian Network for the Prevention of Elder Abuse and serves as an advisor for the Ministry of Seniors, Community, and Social Services in Alberta, Canada. I was a student of Rose's in her Psychology of Aging course during university, albeit virtually due to COVID. Despite not meeting in person, Rose's teaching style fosters closeness, empathy, and dynamic learning even over Zoom. She goes above and beyond, personally funding guest speakers to provide real-world insights, enriching students' experiences beyond textbooks. Rose profoundly influenced my understanding and empathy towards older adults. During my final exam, which was scheduled alongside a significant surgery, Rose helped me and provided exceptional support alleviating my stress, which university professors don't have to do. Her dedication and compassion has a lasting impact on me, and I'm honored to have had this conversation with her on my podcast. Here we go with Dr. Rose Judy. Dr. Rose, thank you so much for joining us on the show. So we're going to jump right in. And you were just telling me that when you teach in the university setting, you want people to walk away feeling empowered and um, equipped with the knowledge to be successful in the world. So in terms of aging, I think there's some terminology things we can go over for listeners because there's a lot of different 
terms that are used, maybe some appropriate and not so appropriate. So can you just give us a brief education breakdown on the terminology around aging and ageist terms? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because we we see in society, and by the way, thank you for inviting me. It's really lovely to see a, a past student do some amazing work here. So I'm very proud that uh, we connected again and, and the work that you're doing um, and and for the continuous interest in this uh, in this topic. Um, so the there are lots of words that continue to kind of travel around us in, in our society. And, and sometimes those words become so embedded in the fabrics of our society that we use them, not necessarily knowing exactly why we're using them or what they mean and how they impact um, the way that people have a conversation with us or the way that we carry ourselves. And sometimes it's not with really some um, ill intention, but we, we realize, especially in the field of aging, that um, the words that we use, especially when talking with older adults in professional settings in particular, that, that words do carry quite a lot of meaning and they, and they um, are powerful tools that either could open up the conversation with this older adult and allow, and they can allow you in, in their life journey, or it could close the door and they don't want to talk to you again. So, so things such as seniors, for example, the word senior, the, the, the term senior in itself, even though interestingly enough here in Alberta, we have a ministry of seniors, we have a lot of um, associations that, um, that work with and for older adults and, it's, and the word seniors are, is in it. The word apparently, um, as, as, as beneficial as it can be sometimes, especially on senior um, discount uh, events in, in some places, could be a bit problematic because when I ask, for example, um, people who are in their early 60s or mid 60s, how they feel about being called a senior, they immediately, they immediately um, aren't really um, happy about or accepting of being referred to as a senior even though at 65 by definition they would be referred to as a senior and that's because we associate the word senior with um, all the negative stereotypes of aging so slow uh, dependent uh, incapable um, uh, not valuable unintelligent uh, unresourceful uh, ill and, and, you know, and so forth and, and, and so on and so forth. And so um, they would rather be called, you know, or referred to as, a, as an adult or, or by their name, of course. And so senior is a no in most cases, unless a person really wants to use it because of the discounts. The preferred term actually is older adult, older person, older people. And that way, it's more of a person, you know, it's more respectful, it's more person-centered, it's a bit generic in a sense, but it doesn't really, um, it's not an association with something that is debilitating or um, unhealthy or dependent. Um, so that, you know, the, the terminology between seniors and older adult or older person is one that is very prominent. But that also, those, those words also um, uh, encompass things such as long-term facilities, for example, um, nursing homes, they are all associated with 
And who is there, right? They're all associated with people who are ill, dependent, incapable of looking after themselves, needing of assistance, needing of help, frail and weak. It's not associated with, you know, a, a positive experience or, or positive um, life journey. And so, again, I would recommend that when people talk about places like that, we, you know, they'd refer to it more of a, in a strength-based uh, approach or use strength-based language. So long-term community, long-term, uh, you can say long-term care, you can say long-term community, I mean, LTC, right? Um, I, I refer to some of the um, senior living places as uh, older adult retirement communities or older adult communities, if you don't want to put the word retirement in there either. So it's it's really interesting, to be honest, Lexi, because language evolves and it changes. And what we would deem as appropriate now might be considered inappropriate in five years or next year. Um, and that's just been the case with with words. So but but to keep in mind that no matter what, the way that you communicate with older adults is with respect, with honoring their experiences, with honoring um, their life journeys, um, uh, using more strength-based person-centered language, um, regardless of how you're, you're, you're using those, those um, words, just to keep that in mind that this is a person who um, you should um, retain and help them retain their value. And as a practitioner, it's certainly important, not even a practitioner, but anyone who's um, involved in any caring professions with older adults, it's important to have this theoretical knowledge of like, what is up to date, what is kind of the current terms, but also I think is another great thing to be valuing that person's individuality is asking them what they prefer to be called. If it is, as you mentioned, just simply their name, that's how they would like to be referred to, or maybe they're okay being referred to as a senior. But checking in with that person, I think, is also creating that um, experience of valuing them too. Always check in with the older adult. Always say, how would you like me to refer to you as? Or what would be the preferred way that you'd like me to um, refer to you with? And in that way, you're giving them the power and the control for them to let you know how they would like to be called. And it could be Mr. Mrs. with no title. It could be by doctor. It could be, you know, um, by first name. Um, so it really depends on what. And so I, I, that's a really brilliant point that you mentioned is asking them if, if you're ever uncertain, um, give that person the, you know, you know, give that conversation, send it back to that person and say, how would you like me to refer to you as? And it could be, it could be whatever, they feel um, is is um, important to them. You brought up a good point too about nursing homes or even senior living facilities is another term that is out there too, which has its own connotation. But it's not always people who are dependent, ill, or incapable of taking care of themselves who are living in these facilities, right? No, absolutely. So, I mean, there are, there are various places where you can find older adults living and it could be 
anywhere from their own home that they've been living in for 50, 60 odd years to a new location that they now call and consider home, wherever that is. And it could be a independent living. It could be assisted living. I mean, those are the main ones that we hear quite often. Um, and there's also memory uh, care or, um, you know, uh, places where people who are experiencing cognitive decline um, would also, uh, you know, they'd move also into places like that, that would provide the support that they would need to, to continue to thrive. But then there is, of course, nursing homes and long-term care that is predominantly um, catered towards people who need support. And so it's in, in any of those locations, you won't necessarily um, find a, the same group of people living there. It could be... It, people from a wide variety and wide ranges of abilities, um, cognitively, physically, psychologically, emotionally, um, and, and various backgrounds as well, and various needs, right? And so each of these places provide particular or specific needs for individuals. And, and that should be something that is also addressed, I think, at some point in a person's life, which is ensuring that the needs that um, they require or they have are matched with the location of the place that they're eventually going to end up moving into. So there's that um, match between what my needs are and what this place provides. And is there, um, is there compatibility there? And it can be from anything from what kind of food they provide, what kind of languages do they use and speak, um, to what kind of supports and resources they provide. Um, I would skip looking at the shiny things like do they have a gym and a swimming pool etc because from my experience older adults don't really care much about that they care about the environment and the feeling of that environment and and um, whether or not it respects the older person and and promotes independence and and competence competence as well yeah that's a great point there's just so many variations of different care for people too. And I, I'm hoping you can touch briefly because this could be a whole podcast episode on its own about the aging trends in Canada, because myself going through university, I have learned about these things, but I feel like if I hadn't had those experience in university, I wouldn't have been as uh, cognizant of the specific aging trends in Canada. And I think that is going to influence the um, the rise and the different levels of care and services in these homes as well. Um, so it's really interesting when we look at the aging trends globally, um, they have changed not just nationally, of course, um, in 2016, we found that there are a lot more, there's a growing number um, actually a, a lot more, you know, in terms of the, the growing number of 65-year-olds compared to 14-year-olds in Canada. And this was, you know, referred to as a historical event. The first time in Canada's history, we have more 65-year-olds and 14-year-olds. And this trend tends to, has tended to increase with time. And what that tells us is that we have in Canada, um, a lot of uh, our older adults, our, our population is made up now of, of a lot more older adults than before. And what that means is that we really have to think about and consider the um, 
what that means to us as a country, right? Um, and I think COVID was a clear example of how we were not really prepared for looking after or supporting uh, a society uh, or particular groups of people if um, there were things like pandemics, for example, or, or societal challenges, and specifically older adults who might be more vulnerable in some cases to being impacted by these events such as the pandemic. And what um, COVID has taught us is that we're not prepared. Um, we're not prepared for a pandemic and its impact. We're not prepared for challenges that could shake the core of our society and make us wonder whether or not we will be able to come out from this um, you know, in, in, a, in a positive or, or a, a good way. Um, and we saw during COVID that there was a dip in life expectancy in Canada, where average life expectancy before COVID tended to be quite high relative to um, the United States. Um, but during COVID, because of the average age of death was around 82, and our average life expectancy was 82, we actually found that there was a dip in average life expectancy during COVID. And that started to, to rise again gradually after uh, 2020. But it made us pause and think, um, do we, are we equipped? Do we have the resources to protect people who are vulnerable from things such as a pandemic? Um, and what is needed for us to make sure that as a society, something like a pandemic doesn't really um, uh, impact us in, in, in traumatic ways, such as the deaths of, uh, of people in general and older adults in particular. Especially as you had mentioned, now we have the, a higher percentage of people over 85 than 14 year olds. So that means in the future, moving forward generations, we're gonna have more and more pressures on those institutions that support older adults. So having been in that space through a global pandemic and we're not susceptible from it happening again, what have you seen change or shift in that field to prevent the things that just happened in our last pandemic? Yeah. Just, just to kind of, um, just to, to point out, it's 65, not 85. 65, sorry. It could be 85 for all I know, but um <laughs> So what we have learned lesson-wise, I guess, from uh, the pandemic is that, again, we're not really well-equipped. Um, it, it had increased and heightened our fear of aging and older adulthood and what that brings, right? It made people more um, aware of potentially how the vulnerability of a particular group of people. Now, I don't want to pinpoint the older adults because I think that is ageist to 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 uh, categorize them as the most vulnerable because i think if you looked at the pand uh, covid as a as a as a uh, as a challenge in itself it was impacting really people who had various chronic conditions and uh, immunity challenges as well but the focus on older adults um was highlighted as a result of the number of deaths that occurred in that older adulthood category the 80 plus 
right? But if you really looked at uh, at it during COVID, many of our 65-year-olds were at the forefront of the frontline worker staff. They were at the supermarkets working as, uh, you know, um, they were the uh, the uh, clinic uh, administrators, they were the doctors, the nurses, the social workers. There were still people who were in that 65-plus category who will continue to work. And so for us to focus on older adults only during COVID, I think is a problem because it only exasperates our stereotypes that older adults need to be protected. And in fact, during COVID, we found that there was what we refer to as compassionate ageism that started to surface. This whole talk about ageism really became quite prominent during COVID. Our beliefs that older adults um, or people who are chronologically older um, are more weaker and more vulnerable and in need of protection. Um, And so compassionate ageism is when you are overly protective um, and compassionate towards a group of people because your belief is that they need to be protected and they are more vulnerable. And we found that happening with older adults. You know, let's keep the older adults isolated. Let's keep the older adults in a bubble. Let's keep the older adults not interacting or coming out into society. Um, And it can happen with good intention. And I believe that sometimes that mostly is the case, especially healthcare and ageism. It could happen with good intention. And we don't think about the repercussions and how that could actually impact the way that the person feels and um, processes their own aging experience. And so um, we have learned a lot after COVID. We've learned that we are ageist as a society, that we are um, unprepared to uh, protect all vulnerable people, that we have this view that older adults are not tech savvy. And um, that is also quite ageist as well, where in fact, a lot of older adults had been using technology way before we even considered that they that they needed to use it, but they weren't probably using it in ways that we um, had anticipated or, or do anticipate them using it. So it was, re- it's really, it was just a really interesting, it felt almost like a social experiment where we, <laughs> We were just looking at it from the outside and by being I mean, a society and going, oh, that's interesting. We how we didn't think about that and how that's impacting even the way that people behave um, and the way that people interact with others. Um, you weren't concerned pre-COVID with someone sneezing or coughing um, within your vicinity. But after COVID, that changed dramatically where people were but getting quite, uh, you know, worked up and and upset or uh, uncomfortable when someone sneezes or coughs, it almost felt like, do you have, do you have the virus? Should I protect myself? And and something like COVID is a historical um, event that impacts our human lifespan. And if you remember back to our first class in aging, I talk about historical events that could impact human development and how that could change the course of how we interact with others and how our society is built and is is managed. And COVID was something like that because it was a historical event that in fact impacted us globally. It was more like a global event. Wow. There's a lot of stuff there, but that's interesting. You bring up that first class because I think that would have been, uh, that was in the pandemic, I guess that was 2021. Okay. So we were in it, but yeah, now we're seeing the ramifications of that behavior change across multiple populations and, and 
nationalities too. So that's interesting. And also the compassion, compassionate ageism. As you said, I think that hopefully, right, that is usually from the best intended place. And it was for like safety and concern. But I can see how that can tread into ageist territory when you're depriving individuals of their their choice. Absolutely. And and that's and you see that usually in places like um, older adult communities, long term care communities, for example, um, um, you know, the the nursing homes and and those forms of um, communities that um, the premise is predominantly that they are looking after and taking care of people who the view is that they can't take care of themselves and they require some form of assistance from you, but that could tread. You're right. There's this, there's a fine line between that and between stripping the person of agency and uh, competency and independence and a sense of perceived control, um, regardless of what their abilities are, including cognitive decline um, uh, as a result of, of uh, forms of dementia. So taking that away from somebody is absolutely detrimental to their quality of life. I want to tread lightly here and I want to make sure that I'm uh, using the right language. So please correct me where you see fit. I'm wondering how this compassionate ageism, if it's from a well-intended place and it is stripping somebody of their choice and their agency, how could that be considered a form of neglect or elder abuse and maybe you could disentangle those two terms for us um, and explain a little bit more about those two concepts um yeah so compassionate compassionate ageism comes from like i said usually it's that initial you know from the outside it looks like good intention um because the person the person it could be a caregiver it could be a healthcare professional um, an LPN or an HCA, someone who is a healthcare aide, for example, just people who usually interact one-on-one um, with older adults and they're looking after them or, or tending to their needs um, and doing everything for them, right? Because we need to protect you. We need to look after you. You're here to be looked after. Um, and what that does, like I said, it makes a person who's at the receiving end feel like um they're they're unable to make their own decisions and when that usually is the case around them i mean i'm sure that older adults could you know some of them would be able to voice their um, dissatisfaction with that kind of treatment but in some cases if you see it as a norm and you believe that it's a norm and this is how the environment is running then um, older adults might with time almost um, accept that this is how things are, um, and so I don't I don't see compassionate ageism as a form of um, of elder abuse or a form of neglect as much as I see it a way of stripping away, like I said, agency and competency and independence and control from older adults as a result of that belief of it being um, uh, an intention where you're looking after them. Whereas elder abuse is intentional or unintentional, um, physical, 
um, financial, emotional, psychological, sexual forms of abuse where it's impacting the well-being of an, uh, of an older adult. Um, and we can also add spiritual and religious to groups that are actually spiritual and religious, like our First Nations and Indigenous peoples and people who are religious or spiritual in general. Um, but also neglect could be a form of elder abuse. So neglect, again, is it's really interesting because neglect can come in intentional and unintentional ways. And what neglect is, is that you're not meeting the basic needs of a person. And the reason why neglect is a form of elder abuse is when it's intentional. You intend to not take your older adult to their doctor's appointments or to tend to a wound or to um, um, renew um, or take, you know, or bring their medication to them or renew their, medi their medications to bathe them, to feed them, to um, provide basic necessities. And that is intentional. Right. So that is called neglect and, 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 and it is intentional and it's a form of elder abuse. The unintentional neglect, um, I like to kind of clarify that sometimes that happens as a result of misunderstanding, misinformation or miseducation and awareness. And the reason why I talk about that quite a bit is because you will find that there are a group of people who don't intend to neglect and mistreat their older adult. And it happens in ways where. It's because of a lack of education and knowledge, but also because of a lack of um, support that that person um, is not provided with. You find that people who come from linguistically and culturally diverse backgrounds, for example, and you know that's something also we talk about in our course, they might be misinformed or miseducated, um, not aware of what resources are, are available for them for respite care, for example, a lot of caregivers are immigrant caregivers who are not only looking after their children, but also aging parents and also are in the workforce. So what happens is that there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of um, displacement challenges that that person is already going through. And it can and that stress can bubble up and it can come in ways that is um, shown as, um, you know, neglectful, abusive ways. But I, I, I also would like to highlight that sometimes it's unintentional. And I've talked with people who didn't know that what they were doing in the eyes of our Western law mm. here in Canada is viewed as, as abuse or neglect. Um, and they were very distraught to know that that is um, it is a form of, of, of abuse or it is referred to as neglect. And it's because they didn't know. So I think what we need to do better at and what we need to do more of as a society is to educate. And that's why I say empowerment, right? Empowerment shouldn't be a word that we throw around a lot. What it does mean is to give power to people, to educate them, to be make, make them more aware um, about the coping mechanisms and about the supports and resources that are available um, to them to help them help others, but also help them thrive as well. When you said that you've spoken with people who weren't aware that the behaviors or actions that they were exhibiting were um, neglectful, that must have been, as you said, they were quite distressed, but that would be so heartbreaking to feel like you're already doing the most that you can for your family members and yourself and then to hear that. So how, how do you meet somebody there and support them through that? Um, 
I mean, after you have conversations with people and realize that what they're doing isn't, like I said, isn't ill-intended deliberately, um, you get to understand their life journey. Um, this is part of you being trauma-informed, right? It's 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 trying to understand um, a person's experiences from that compassionate, non-judgmental, but curious lens where you don't um, point the finger at the person and say, what is wrong with you? Did you not know this is mm. abusive behavior? Rather to think about it from what's happened to you and with you that or that has caused you to um, not feel like you have the support to help you in this in this journey of yours. And so I have a I have a mentor and you know who it is, my my dear friend Deb Runnels, who told us once, and it's like it's as big as this earring that I have on my <laughs> on my ears in terms of a memory, is that she said to me, when you open the door of curiosity, the door of judgment closes. And you look at people with compassion, you look at people with curiosity, and you have no room for judgment, and that door is closed. You don't judge them. Um, you, don't ju- you don't look at them with judgment as to why they're like this. You, you, want to, you want to think about and ask questions such as, how did you become like this? And how can I help you uh, in your journey so you can feel supported and you can feel that um, you're, you're, you're a loved individual and that you're cared as well, like you're cared for. And so, um, yeah, talking to people from that lens that of no judgment. And then you find that it's, be, it's truthfully because they don't know. It's truthfully because they're not educated or they were not given the tools of knowledge. And, and in itself, when you don't give someone the tools of knowledge to demystify something, um, they'll continue doing it in the wrong way. And so what our role is as a society is not to, um, you know, punish people because they don't know, but try to understand why is it you don't know this and how can we provide you with this knowledge and who else doesn't know about this that can benefit from this knowledge as well. So looking at communities, for example, and and, um, doing workshops and training and awareness within communities that you think would benefit uh, as a as a at large from that kind of knowledge and awareness because I can guarantee you it's not just that one person absolutely absolutely and I think especially living in Canada we live in this very multicultural country which is really fantastic but essentially there is this western um idealization that occurs right we have this these lenses that we see the world through our cultural lenses and in the western ones is like there's a right and a wrong so if somebody's acting within their cultural lens but that doesn't align with ours then it can be really easy as you mentioned to pass judgment on what somebody's doing so having cultural competence is important and maybe you could share with us a little bit about what cultural competence even is Cultural competence is one of those things that I also quite, you know, willingly and um, um, excitedly talk about Um, because of my background um, as as a Middle Eastern person and someone who um, speaks a different language, has different spiritual and cultural um, understandings than 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 than, let's say the white Western um, society that I live in. 
I become quite I became quite interested in understanding how we can in, enhance the uh, experiences of people who are linguistically and culturally diverse. But what I also realized with time, because of my professional life, is that a lot of well-intended professionals who work in the field of, you know, social services, etc., um, need more support in this area. And again, I come from the lens of no judgment. I come from a lens of um, trying to understand and be, being curious about what is it that you don't know and what, I can, what can I provide you, your organization or your team to help you see things in a different way. So cultural competence, uh, cultural compassion and humility, there are three topics that could be addressed in some of these conversations. And just in general, the cultural competence component in, involves being able and competence and, and compassion involves um, not necessarily knowing everything about a culture, because I think that's impossible, but to be open minded and accepting of differences that people come with and to be, again, non-judgmental in the way that they do things. Um, because they are carrying cultural values, traditions, and beliefs. And, and coming at it from that lens of trying to understand um, how their culture plays a role in the situation that they're in and supporting that if that is to their benefit and for their benefit and not to um, impose Western European Caucasian ways of thinking about a particular experience, that, that particular experience. And so what we're doing here is saying, it's not just my way and my way of thinking, and this is the right way. It's about saying, huh, that's really interesting that you're, in your culture, this is how this is talked about, or this is how it's addressed. I wonder how we can still incorporate that in your healthcare plan, in your social plan, um, because clearly it's something important to you and to who you are as, as a person, right? Not strip away that ethnic identity that could be very valuable to that person. And, and, and cultural competence is just about that. It's spreading awareness, respecting and honoring differences that people come with and being open to, to having those conversations and thinking about ways where you can incorporate those cultural nuances into the the experiences of the client or the person that you're working with um, because you know that's that's what we're talking about in terms of diversity diversity is a strength diversity is different people doing doing things in ways that make sense to them and all that does is it adds to the plethora of the knowledge and the skills and the ways of thinking that are different that could enhance um, a project or uh, or a particular experience. I'm curious because a lot of our medical care is westernized, right? So how how often are is this kind of cultural competence approach? being used in terms of supporting older adults in uh, who specifically may be in a, a care because in those uh, settings, right, it's still very much biomedical approach. This is the way that we do things. And as I mentioned, quite westernized. So I don't know if you have like a figure or a generalization of how often is cultural competence being implemented in these spaces? We don't have the numbers. Um, I personally don't have the numbers, but I don't, I've never found the numbers, to be honest. Um, and so you never know. So my hope is that it's being done um, 
quite often. Um, however, I think we're getting better as a society in, in understanding and appreciating differences and how those could be looked at as, strength, as strengths. And I think that's one of the, again, key learnings, I guess, from us evolving as a society after the pandemic is that we have realized that um, the, the, the diverse experiences and knowledge and ways of looking at things that people bring into um, a particular situation can actually be very beneficial um, for uh, the organization, the team, the group, the cause. And I, and, and I would like to believe that, that we're, we're using that um, experience and knowledge and learning to, to benefit and, and enhance how we are um, evolving as a society. And so I don't know the numbers. I have good faith that we are doing the best we can but I also have an inkling of a feeling that we need to do better and more of them and to make it a priority as well in our trainings, whether the medical field, doctors, nurses, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, et cetera, because we are not only growing in the number of older adults, we are growing in the number of ethnically diverse older adults. And so you're bound to, as a professional, to bump into an older adult as a client or as a patient um, as a as a colleague who is ethnically diverse um, and to understand how that lens um, could be of benefit um, to you and, and in that relationship with them. I really love that you've highlighted a couple times the strength-based approach to this because if everyone was the same, how boring would that be, first of all? But the 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 benefits that that can bring of seeing a project in a different lens and having those different insights can be invaluable to many different spaces too. And I'm wondering how, how does culture act as a potential barrier for providing adequate care and being compassionate? Um, I mean, the, the thing that we find usually with, uh, discussions around diversity and, and ethnic diversity or cultural diversity of people is that because individuals come um, with diverse linguistic uh, knowledge and experiences or abilities, cultural, traditional, behavioral, etc., cetera, um, those are definitely pluses and strengths in my opinion, and they, they should never be considered otherwise. However, in some cases, um, you might be working with people who, as a result of English not being their main language, um, could that that inability to convey their thoughts or ideas clearly or adequately um, could could be a potential challenge for them. So, language for people who um, don't feel confident or comfortable speaking in English might become a, a barrier. Um, like like we talked about the cultural nuances and the tr traditions and the values, um, those could become, they could become barriers towards a person growing um, and or, or being looked at um, as a person who is capable. Um, it's interesting because when I speak with a, a person who, who knows a second language, all I see is strength. Because if you're smart enough to speak another language, it means your brain is just so big and and <laughs> and so you know and so amazing. 
Um, and But unfortunately, sometimes within pockets in our society, people who have a, a second language or who speak with an accent or who have an ethnic name are not looked into as, as people with, with capabilities and strengths. They're looked at as people who are incapable and who are not knowledgeable or people who are immigrants or people who, you know, are, uh, might be mocked or made fun of because of the way that they pronounce things. And, and, and that's, that's unfortunate to, to to see and experience. And in our community, we've we've seen that, and we know it happens. But um, the good thing is that it doesn't happen often or all the time, but it does happen. And I I would assume that sometimes it would happen in secret, uh, and so we might not even hear or know about it happening. And sometimes the person, him or herself, the individual who's being impacted by this sort of uh, of negative um, reaction because they are culturally or linguistically diverse, they might feel embarrassed uh, and ashamed of talking about it. Uh, and so they either uh, don't acknowledge it or they pretend it doesn't happen or it didn't happen um, or they don't share that information, which is unfortunate, right? But um, we need to be a lot more proactive in supporting people who um, who can come with uh, those diverse abilities and encourage them to to be part of, of of our thriving community and just i think too as we've been talking about just having that level of cultural competence to be aware that there isn't just one approach or one understanding and being open and curious to another human being's interpretation of things can also help to mitigate any of those negative experiences that could come from misunderstanding or the inability to communicate too. Yeah, I, I had a I had a staff member who once said to me, you know, if I don't speak the language of uh, the client that I'm working with, would they know that, you know, that I'm genuinely wanting to help them and support them? Or would that be kind of lost in translation, so to speak? Um, and my response to that person was that compassion, respect, um, and empathy um, transcends and bypasses any language barrier, in my opinion. Um, the person, even though they don't speak your language or that you don't speak their language, could potentially sense that you are a genuine person who really wants to, who's looking um, who's looking after their, their well-being and, their, and that there's good intention in there, that you're, you're trying to help them and support them. So it could be sign language. It could be um, using Google Translate. It could be speaking, you know, slowly, but trying to maybe use some visual cards or cues as well. Um, whatever it is that you can, you're using, even if you don't have an interpreter or a translator, if you're compassionate, if you're kind, if you're respectful, if you are um, empathetic, I think that that doesn't need a translator or, or for you to speak that same person's language, that, that same language as that person. Good point. Language is not just verbal language. And I think even as you were saying, um, you know, if the person is compassionate and well-intended and empathetic, even through their actions, non-verbals, the other person could pick up their intentions too. So it doesn't, all communication doesn't have to be verbally stated as well, which is so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you touched a little bit ago about trauma-informed, and I think that kind of ties into this whole conversation of uh, cultural competence as well. So could you tell us what it means to be trauma-informed? Yeah, so 
like I said, the trauma-informed lens is really, um, it's based on this understanding or understanding that people um, that we come across in our lives um, could have experienced something that was emotionally impactful, right? And we don't, we don't wear a badge saying that we have experienced trauma. So sometimes from the outside, we can't tell that a person has experienced an event that was traumatic. And what, what I mean by traumatic, it mean, I mean something that really has impact, impacted them emotionally. It could impact the way that they think, the way that they behave. And, and it, 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 it has a clinical, there's a clinical definition for it. And it, historically, it was um, a physical trauma, so something you can actually see. But what we've come to realize as we've evolved in this area is that it's also things that we don't see. And a lot of it is things that we don't see. And and in my opinion, um, trauma can be anything that a person defines. A a traumatic event is anything that a person defines as, as being traumatic to them because it's about them and it's not about us. It's about their lens and how they saw and how they processed and how they experienced that particular experience. And it's not about this clinical definition that we have, that you either fit it or you don't, which means that you are, if you do fit it, then it's trauma. And if you don't fit it, then it's not. I think that's doing injustice to some of these experiences. It's very disrespectful for some experiences too. And so that's why I said that trauma-informed lens shifts that um, what is wrong with the person? uh, Why are they like that? Um, cause that is not compassionate. That is not empathetic. That's, that's very judgmental. That makes the person feel like they were the fault and the cause of what's happening to them. Um, rather looking at it from what has happened to you. Um, how can I help you? How can I support you? Um, sometimes they don't want to share with you what has happened to them, but they, but they want you to help them. And, and it could be helping them now. It could be helping them in the long term. Um, maybe tomorrow. It depends on how you build that relationship with them. And that's why there are various principles in, in trauma-informed care. Um, the most prominent one that, that you'll see in those principles is trustworthiness. So trustworthiness is, is gaining that trust. It's earning that trust. It's not that I say, trust me, because who am I? It's building a relationship, building rapport with that person that you're that you're supporting, and and they allow you in, and they allow you in because they have now trusted you. So trustworthiness um, is a pillar in trauma informed care. Um, safety uh, of the person is is also another important uh, component, and also the person who um, is at the receiving end, and also the the professional who's working with with the client as well. Um, uh, Empowerment is also another pillar for trauma-informed care. So all in all, um, trauma-informed care really looks at how we could um, be compassionate and empathetic to the experiences of people and um, deal with them in in that non-judgmental way. And I, and I was reading at some point something about uh, the approach to trauma-informed care, which is that we, it might be helpful for us to treat everybody that we interact with and come across from that trauma-informed lens, because you never know what a person has experienced. Um, it could have been a loss of uh, a child, a family member, displacement, a divorce, um, 
you know, there are the traumas that we identify in our society and the traumas that we don't really identify with, such as um, a loss of a, 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 a child. It could be an abortion. It could be a, a stillbirth. Um, those things we don't necessarily look at in that same lens. Um, and, and our responses aren't usually very compassionate and kind either. And so the trauma-informed lens um, looks at trying to be kinder, more compassionate, patient, uh, and empathetic with people, and 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 also ensuring that the, the person, the client, is always at the, the driver's seat. It's about allowing them um, to be in allowing it's about them allowing you, sorry, to be in in, in their presence, but them always being in control. They will let you know um, when they're ready. They will let you know if it's something that they want to work on or not. Um, and giving them that sense of control is so important because, again, it's not about you. It's about them and what they need from you in that moment. And I think taking a step back and being allowed to be in their presence and and yeah. doing all those things you mentioned is just what's going to cultivate that trustworthiness in the relationship as well. Absolutely. Um, and so that trustworthiness component is really, really important because um, if a person doesn't trust you um, and trust you, you know, that you have good intentions and that you are there to support them, um, they might not either open up completely to you or be wary of um, your intentions. Um, and just like we said at the beginning of, of this conversation, the words that you use are very important and the way that they land um, could either um, encourage the person to open up to you and talk with you and open up about their experiences and share those with you, or it can completely shut them down and you'll never see them again, right? And you don't want that, especially if it's a person that you know would have benefited from that support that you were able to provide them. But, you know, sometimes they may have sensed something from the receiving end or the, the service provider end, or maybe they said something or a word or even a behavior that didn't make them feel like they were ready to trust that person. And so they, you know, they just shut down basically and close their door. Do you have an example you could share with us how this trauma-informed approach made a difference in somebody's care? Um. I mean, in general, when when I do training for um, teams and organizations, it's really trying to build awareness and support the staff and support their the staff's wellness, but also to educate the staff and empower them as well. Um, I've had a situation, for example, where a staff member has talked to me about a potential client, um, and and the initial reaction was when the client came in. They would the the staff member said, I'll close the door to keep the content of the conversation private and confidential. And the client panicked. And and there was, you know, that sense of of um discomfort there. And so I spoke to the staff member and I said, it could be that, you know, when you do something like this, such as um and again, the intention was good, right? It's, it's, it wasn't that it was an ill-intended kind of um, suggestion, but what what enfolded was that it, it came to, to the realization that this person 
I was um, abused behind closed doors and that they were um, scared of talking about it. And so that closing of the door made them panic even more um, because they associated in that it's almost like a, a, a trigger where it, it, they associated the closed door with um, that that feeling of discomfort and, and lack of safety, which, you know, again, was not the intention. And so I remind staff members, always ask the client, what do they feel comfortable doing? Are you, are you okay if I close the door? Would you feel comfortable if I left it open? Um, sometimes they don't want to talk to you in your office. You know, um, it doesn't make them feel comfortable. Meet them somewhere where they feel comfortable, but try and and um, be respectful and mindful of privacy when you are you know, meeting them in public places, for example. But always ask the client. And if you don't know, because if they come from a cultural background that is different to you, if you don't know, always ask them. In your culture, um, can you teach me how I could be more respectful of your experiences? Or in your culture, how can I... Um, honor and respect your experiences and journey more or um, can you tell me how uh, in your culture um, can we have this conversation where it it doesn't feel like it's um, uncomfortable for you um, or or provokes uh, reactions that are that that are unpleasant for you right so again you have to be mindful of the words that you're using don't throw mental illnesses and you know mental health challenges willy-nilly because those Things could be um, taboo and a stigma of a conversation to have and words to use with particular cultures that don't talk about mental illness. I I love how you just brought it back to asking, right? If you don't know, ask. Don't make judgments. Don't make assumptions. Don't do something. And even if you do something and you make a mistake, that's okay. It's okay to make mistakes. But how do you come back from that? And and checking in with the person. I, I, I love it. I love it. So given that the landscape of aging and age-related issues is always changing, how do you stay informed about this big changing space? Um, Well, I love to educate myself. Um, So I I tend to practice what I preach. I teach at the university, as you probably, as as you definitely know, um, and I provide training and awareness sessions to community and organizations and government um, groups as well. And so, for me to do my due diligence, I need to be informed. I need to stay on top of the research and the the new findings and the new news and the knowledge uh, out there. And it's always something that. Uh, I'm very passionate about and um, not giving outdated or incorrect information as best as I can. Um, but, you know, it might happen. This is this is the human nature of, uh, of slips sometimes. But I try to avoid that by, um, by keeping up to date, by uh, reading about what's happening and keeping notes as well. And um, that also encourages me to... Um, at any opportunity that is that is uh, appropriate to share that knowledge back and and share that research back with groups that I think would be, be would benefit from from an updated um, session, for example, right? So it's never a one and done thing. Um, like I said, 
language words, they change and they evolve. Um, but so does statistics and knowledge and um, suggestions that we have and conclusions that we have read. And um, they can change and evolve depending on, on the research and, and how advanced we've become in that particular area. So That's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's knowledge and education from the cradle to the grave. <laughs> and sharing it, of course. Yes. So as we wrap up here, what piece of wisdom can you provide our listeners with as they embark on their quest for wholeness? Um, I would encourage people to your listeners and just people anywhere, really, and anyone that I come across um, to be more curious than judgmental. Like I said, I really, really like that. I really like that that um, mantra of be curious more than you're judgmental because um, we might disagree with the way that uh, things happen and the things that people say, and that's normal and that's okay. But I think what's far more important is to be good listeners, be intentive, be, you know, have, have um, a good intention uh, and be attentive in the way that we listen um, and to respect that people have different views than we do. And that's okay. Um, but what, what can we learn from that? What can we learn from their differing um, ways of looking at something? And I think it could, it could enlighten us. It could inform us. Um, it could educate us more. Um, and that's my hope is that people continue to be curious about other people and cast away that sense of judgment because we don't know what's happening to people. Um, we, we see what we see from the outside, but we don't know what's happening um, in, in on the inside uh, of these individuals. And I think we'd be a lot um, nicer as a society if that was the case. <laughs> and empowered too. You've mentioned that word a couple of times, but how empowering and enlightened you could be from gaining more knowledge about different ways to see the world because there's a lot of them. Yeah, we're never done with knowledge and education, in my opinion. Some people feel content with the knowledge they have. Um, I'm not one of those people, luckily. Me either. <laughs> um, so just to continue that, and it can be at your own pace, but be, to, be, to be open to conversations with different people is also very helpful. Um, so it doesn't have to be reading literature and articles and research. It can really just be interacting with and networking and socializing with people who are different and to listen to their points of view about things that you are comfortable having conversations about. Um, and that only helps you grow even more as a person, in my opinion. It, you can never go wrong with that. And on that note, thank you so much for sharing your education and insight and knowledge with us. I think it's going to be so impactful for our listeners. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me on this adventure today. If you're interested in learning more about holistic health or have topics that you'd like to hear on the show, connect with me over on Instagram at quest for wholeness podcast. That's all one word quest for wholeness podcast. I'll see you next time to continue our shared quest for wholeness.
thank you for joining me on this adventure today. If you're interested in learning more about holistic health or have topics that you'd like to hear on the show, connect with me over on Instagram at Quest for Wholeness Podcast. That's all one word, Quest for Wholeness Podcast. I'll see you next time to continue our shared quest for wholeness.